Hello and welcome to the Academy Podcast. My name is Aaron Mies. And I'm Daniel Grasso. And Daniel and I just wrapped up a an intense debate about whether or not the underground man was wanting to get to the party that he's going to first, the going away party for Zerkov, which if you have not listened to our last episode, please do so. That will set the context for this episode because we we're just going to jump right into where we left off in the book. And we were having this debate about whether or not he, the underground man, was intending to end up at this going away party for Zverkov first. And my and translation says... what's important is that I was right and Aaron was wrong. <laughs> well, in my translation, it says, I had been certain the day before that I should be the first to arrive. And then for Daniels, it says before that I would be the first to arrive. Because in a previous section, he does talk about how he didn't want to be the first to arrive. And he goes over the thousands of things in his head that he needs to be thinking about in regards to this party. And I felt that was a good segue to start off the segment because he makes it very clear that he is going over all these finer details of social conventions, all for the purpose of besting Zverkov. Zverkov, I'm trying to say that right. Yeah. Anyway, you get my point. So, and one of those things is, the time of his arrival, which he immediately bungles because he shows up there. It says at at five o'clock because he thinks that's when the dinner is set and then nothing is established at the cafe because the dinner doesn't start till six. And he had no idea. And this is kind of going to become the theme of this party of him trying to basically one up and best this guy at his own party and <laughs> to try to win over people. And then and then. Again, this kind of romantic image that we're getting that he would best Zverkov and then Zverkov would be like, wow, well said, chap, you're a great guy. And I, you know, I'm sorry for all of the times that we <laughs> crossed paths yeah, and it was terrible. One of one of the like romantic visions he's having um, before he goes is the idea that he's going to get there and he's going to win over not just Zverkov, but the entire party. And he's going to crush Zverkov and he's going to tell these really funny stories. He's going to be the center of attention. Everyone's going to realize that they had mischaracterized him. And, you know, they, they're they now they're so sorry for making fun of him back in high school, you know, and Zerkov's going to be crushed at his own party. And but to show how how magnanimous he is, he's going to he's going to throw uh, Zerkov a rope. He's going to say, you know what, Zerkov, I forgive you. And Zerkov's just going to love him for that. He's going to accept that. And they're all going to be great friends. They're going to hug and kiss and reconcile. And then, like Aaron said, he gets there at five o'clock and it turns out the time had been changed to six. And so we have this theme of he's trying his best. He thinks he's going to succeed and he's being oppressed. And I mean, I think I personally, Aaron can't relate with with this because if you told him to show up at five, he'd show up at six anyway. So That's he'd correct. Be there, he'd be there right on time. But I would show up at five and I'd be like, luckily I bring a book with me everywhere. So that'd be okay. But still, I'd be like, I can't believe I got here so early. I feel like an idiot. And then everyone comes in at six. And here's where the psychology of the underground man is on full display, because while he's sitting here for an hour, he's thinking, how could they have done this to me? This is some horrible trick. And they're how should I present myself to them when they arrive? Should I look really angry? Should I look perfectly at peace? Like, oh, it's not a big deal. Should I like forgive them for it? And he's thinking he's swinging back and forth between them because it looked really good if he could just play it off like, oh, it's no matter. And they get there and he just can't control himself. And he's like, how dare you not tell me? And it just ruins everything. All that like suave character that he was planning on playing and winning them over immediately goes out the window because he's like, how dare you make me wait for an hour? And they're just like, "Woo, this is going to be a fun evening. Right. And it gets off pretty quick. Actually, this chapter doesn't doesn't go on for very long. They they arrive at six o'clock. Um, he makes his complaint, like you said, then they end up, you know, sitting down for drinks and they go through a very uncomfortable conversation as Verkov is trying to kind of ask him questions about his life and uh, just try to reconnect. And they talk about his salary being kind of low and how he hasn't achieved much and it's very awkward and then he's like going on and on about the yellow stain on his trousers is causing him great concern um and then what ends up happening is they have a toast to zverkov and then the underground man states that he wants to do his own toast he doesn't drink to the original toast and he wants to give his own speech aside which is apparently rude in 19th century russia 
and he basically bungles this dumb speech that ends up amounting to the same thing of drinking to his health. And then Zirkov is like stands up and is like very, very offended and then just bids him a farewell. And that's pretty much how I mean, unless you want to add something else, that's kind of how the chapter pretty much concludes. Um, and he's also drunk at this point, too, um, because he's been drinking this whole time. And well, there, um, there's an important that that's how like the the dinner kind of ends. And so we're at this point where he's alienated everyone in the room, just like you knew he would. And they're like, everyone's drunk, basically, or has drank a lot. The underground man himself is very drunk already. It says that he's not used to um, used to the alcohol. And so the other people in the party just start to ignore him. They're like, OK, this guy is drunk and he's spiteful and he's saying these horrible things. He's just interrupting our party. Why did he even show up? Like, uh, right. They all, go off to the side. Yeah. yeah all we can do mm-hmm. is just ignore him. And so then another tragic comedy, uh, tragic comic scene takes place where they go off to the side and they're like, it's like a cafe area. So they're like on the sofa and they're continuing to drink and have these same conversations that the underground man finds to be so prosaic and boring. They're talking about how how much does someone make? They praise they praise the beauty of women they've never seen. They do all these very conventional things that the officers would do. Oh, and that they did back in high school. So he's kind of like, but what he's doing is the important part here because instead of being normal, he gets up and paces back and forth within like a 10 foot space three hours from eight until 11 o'clock and so if you can imagine you're at a birthday party or something and four good friends are sitting there drinking and having this great intimate moment and you're just talking and living life and enjoying yourself and that one guy who invited himself from high school is literally just pacing back and forth like 10 feet from you for three hours and looking at you disdainfully and laughing and just and like, what would you do in this situation? It's it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. And then and then he's basically pacing around the room, uh, stamping his feet like a child to get their attention. Right. Yeah. He wants them. He wants them to address him. And he's like, I'm not going to stop pacing until <laughs> they look at me. And then sometimes they do stop and look at him and instead of using that like he said he would to like ask for forgiveness or like show how smart he is, he just snorts and he's like, huh, I won't even give you the time of day and then continues to pace going, damn it, I really should have taken that advantage. And so he just swings back and forth between wanting to insult them and wanting to beg for their forgiveness for three hours as he literally swings back and forth while he paces. And then we end up kind of repeating the original story of the book where he then resolves to gain their friendship again in a weird way where he says, I apologize. I've insulted all of you. And then Zirkov is like, you can never insult me. <laughs> and like this kind of slight, which is, which is his worst fear, right. right? That he, that his fear wasn't like when Zirkov first comes in, he says that he acts with a condescension and this general benevolence, which essentially is Zirkov just being polite. But he says, but what if, without meaning to insult me, he had really taken it into his, Zerkov, stupid sheep's brain that he was immeasurably superior to me and could no longer regard me in any way but patronizingly. This very possibility made me gasp for air. And so that's how it opens. And then the scene ends, like Aaron said, with Zerkov having this exact, exact situation where he's like, you are literally like a fly to me. So Zerkov becomes the, the, the officer who is crushing the underground man on the street you know, for three years. And so here it is happening again, like Aaron was saying. Yeah. And then, you know, not to, you know, not to hang too much onto this, what ends up happening to conclude it is that he resolves to slap him in the face. He's like, (laughs) he's going to bump shoulders with this guy before. And then now he's like, I'm going to slap this guy in the face. So this, so the underground man is resolved to have physical contact with people. I'm guessing whenever possible. Um, And so he, stumbles out of there after they leave they go to a brothel and he stumbles out of there and and says like i'm gonna slap him in the face and so then we immediately move into chapter uh chapter five apologies i i do think it's worth pointing out though that he he really does make this effort 
before the slapping <laughs> where he says, you know, he he begs for his friendship at the very last second. Everyone else in the group is like walking out the door and he just stops pacing and rushes over and is like, please, like, I beg for your friendship. I'm so sorry. And he tries to reconcile, but he doesn't get that moment, that romantic moment from that we talked about before, this big moment where if this was a novel, they would be like, they would say, oh, of course, well, I understand your suffering. I'm so sorry. Like, let's reconcile. But he doesn't get that. Instead, he gets the the realistic answer, which is what we just said, that he just gets crushed. And so then he switches back to this. I'm going to I'm going to slap him, which is kind of like him wanting to be thrown out of a out of a window and is in that in his earlier episode. But I'm going to keep pointing out this little thought, I guess, in which we could see that as an earnest effort. But one of the things, if you are reading Notes from Underground or plan on doing so later on, something to emphasize is that you can't trust this narrator. So everything is done from his perspective. It's not an omniscient perspective. It's a limited perspective. So I just, you can see this as, not to really argue against you, Daniel, but just to add the caveat that it's like, what is really earnest about the underground man. And this is going to be a, a point of contention as we get to the end of the book is, is what, you know, what yeah, is authentic. That's going to be a really big question <laughs> for the last episode. I, I would argue that I think that this is at least a moment of genuineness, but I think that makes it so unreliable is it's changes from moment to moment. So in this moment, he might really be sincere, but in the next moment, who knows how long it would actually last. But yeah, this idea of when is he being really sincere versus when is he saying the right things for other purposes is going to be very important. Yeah, yeah. So and less and less clear, I think. Okay. even less. Okay. so but now we can we can move on from the cafe scene. We'll we'll wrap that up. And 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 so he he uh, (laughs) probably one of my favorite parts. And we did discuss it briefly um, off the air. Um, he again resolves to either win their friendship or slap Zerkov, which is quite the dichotomy that we find ourselves in. And, um, and so he's mumbling to himself and then he, he knows where they're going to go and says, um, you know, if nothing else, like I will have a duel <laughs> with him. And again, just more right. romantic he slips imagery. into the same literary tropes that, the the thing he describes of the duel is literally from Pushkin's short story, right. The Shot, where he it's like almost beat for beat exact. So even in his moment of revenge, in those moments that are like, oh, we I'll be very I'll be very like magnanimous or I'll seek some sort of revenge. Both of those are coming from literary sources and he's just living them out. He even knows that what he's thinking is from books while he's thinking them. So it adds just another layer of self-awareness to your like, okay, now you have this problem of how sincere are you? Does he care that they're from the books? Does he know he's full of And it's just, it's very complicated. It does bring up the interesting point of Chernyshevsky once again, because it seems as if his actions are being dictated just ahead of time, that it's a weird place to find yourself in to decide upon actions but then understand that those actions are not actually yours but yet still fully resolve to decide upon those actions and it becomes this question of are you really the one deciding and the book doesn't really give an answer to that it just presents the scenario in which i would say that there are probably plenty of examples that you or i or anybody else listening have probably felt that we have decided to do something just out of some sort of idea that we may have of ourselves or the situation, but it's not really us making the decision. It's some sort of convention that compels us. But in this case, it's not even really a convention because we would just say, Hey man, just give it up, take the L and go home. But you know, it, it <laughs> just chill out, just, just but, chill out. Yeah. But it's okay. It seems that he's resolved to this ideal, but it's not his ideal. If that makes sense, you know what I mean? It's like he never he didn't come up with it. He's just, as you said, he's read enough of Pushkin. Right. He he his character is someone who's been who doesn't go out much. And like we talked earlier, he's nursed on these. All literally all he does is sit in his house all day and read these romantic books and then go to work. And then he hates people until he reads enough of it that he loves people. 
And then he goes out into the world and faces reality, but they aren't even his ideas. And it, it, it brings up a good question of he, he talks a lot of like in this moment and other moments like it where he feels faded. Yes, exactly. Oh, there is no, there's no other option for me. I need to get in this car and go to the brothel to slap Zirkov because it's all decided, which is a big romantic trope. But for him, he really does feel it. Yeah. And so it ties back to the original conversation about Chernyshevsky because something is decided. And and if you if you read what is to be done, it does come across as pretty romantic literature, I would say, of young people behaving exactly as they as they should uh, in accordance with their own rational ego. And everything is decided in a very rationalist calculation, very objective and everybody's just perfect. And it's just moves along in that kind of fashion of this pretty much romantic, decided, faded responses of, of just exactly what you would expect or want your characters to behave like. Yeah. This, this last episode is one of the episodes that mocks and parodies uh, Chevronevsky's What Is To Be Done, but it gives the reverse image. So the more we talk about it, we can go into that, but it, it is a direct tie back to the And book. so back to this, what we see instead is he's punching, <laughs> he's punching the carriage driver because he's like trying to, he's, he's hyping himself up in his head he's you know he's like i'm gonna go we're gonna do it and then he's gotten to this carriage he's running over there and he's talking about wet snow which is a very interesting um imagery that he's he keeps referring to the wet snow that's that's coming down and he he's come on get on you rascal go 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 and he's like i'm trying sir i'm trying to drive and then he like punches him and he's like go and you're like oh Punches him on the back of the neck, which is actually a very important symbol for Dostoevsky himself, because this is somewhat fun fact, but it also ties into what we're talking about and gives a little more light into it. Um, For Dostoevsky, the first time he left the countryside and came into the city, he was there with his father and his brother and they got into they were like at a um, postage or like a way station to change horses and a bureaucrat from the city jumped it off one or out of one carriage, jumped into the next one and just started doing exactly this, just pounding the peasant in the back of the neck, like saying, no, we got to go. We got to go without say to him. This this was like the epitome of the new bureau, like cruel bureaucrats mistreating peasants. Like imagine just someone, a, a businessman just jumping in an Uber or a taxi and just punching them and screaming drive 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 like that's that's what he's getting at and so to him this stuck with him for the rest of his life and he even said at one point that if he ever started a charitable organization the image would be would be of a of a peasant being punched in the back of the neck that's so interesting because it's something that continues to come up i think throughout dostoevsky's philosophy is pointing out the inconsistency primarily with socialists right um you see it in demons as well, where, you know, he'll have a character present a sort a sort of archetypal, you know, either be an archetype or a philosophy that character is there to espouse that. And it shows a sort of inconsistency when presented in a pure manner. So in this case, you know, you can see the underground man try to be this the romantic Chernyshevsky kind of figure and be of that new bureaucracy because that's what he is. He's a civil servant. And yet be so disconnected from the very peasants that, you know, Chernyshevsky is trying to uplift and trying to serve. Um, And as we talked about that, we saw that new movement of of the gentry of the professional class of Russia going out to the soil to serve. And then and then then we have that. Right. Mm -hmm. That's just so that's so easily lost within this book because he is so self-obsessed that. And I mean, he's just borderline psychotic so it's like he's just got this or at least incredibly neurotic so yeah you'd really do lose that but i mean this image that he's using here is no accident like it was a profound symbol of the times for him when he was a child and like a profound just impact on him as a person because it's the first time he's like going to the big city and you're seeing this horrible cruelty happen 
in the name of official business. And so, you know, this is, it's no accident. That right. There's, there's such a disconnect. And I, and I think to Dostoevsky's point, and this is what makes him such a grounded philosopher novelist is because any philosophy is really meaningless unless it can be put into practice and not be hypocritical in its practice. Yeah. No, I mean, he spent like, that's what every novel of the 1860s was, was showing, showing socialism being put into place in a real world, not in a Shefrenevsky world. And then alternatively, the idiot is him putting his philosophy into into place in the real world and not his idealized world. And it doesn't fare very well. either. Yeah, it's. But that is what he does all the time is he pushes these ideas to the extreme within the world. And I think that just speaks so much to the attraction of Dostoevsky and why he has kind of stood the test of time um, because it is so grounded. I, I think Crime and Punishment is just one of those novels once again, and not to spin off into so many different directions with this, um, but I think it's important to really emphasize and bring this home is that we could imagine, I mean, in the plot for Crime and Punishment, it's the question is has always come up, right? What if What if a murder can be done that benefits everybody? Can you take a human life that would be beneficial to everybody involved? And going with that and seeing where that leads you and putting that in a in a grounded world, in a grounded reality in which you see what that would actually do to somebody who had every single reason and every sort of justification to conduct a murder and to see that play out. And I think that's why Dostoevsky has just just has stood head and shoulders above so many other novelists and continues to be heralded as one of the greats because it's not fantasy really. Even though we're in fictional scenarios, (laughs) even though we find ourselves with fictional characters and we're like, wow, these are pretty zany people. It should be absolutely relatable (laughs) at the same time because you see, even in this podcast, as we've continued to relate to the underground man, how he is not actually as far off from our everyday experience than we would like to imagine. Yeah, it, it's funny you say that because like Crime and Punishment, I feel like it's definitely one of his most grounded and most realistic. And it was one of the most popular things at the time, too. And I mean, it, it famously quote unquote predicted, and that's what Dostoevsky thought it did, a student who murdered a pawn a pawnbroker and stole her stuff. And then this, I think his name was Danny Love, and he went on this big public trial. And of course, he wasn't this idealistic student. He was just after the money, but it became this huge public thing. And his other his other books, so Dostoevsky really thought that his fiction was like predicting the future, essentially, that it was so, that he was so on to something, on the pulse of the nation, that he was able to predict what was going to happen. And then his later novels, um, specifically demons was just people really hated on him for demons that it was just absolutely out like so fantastical and everyone was neurotic and crazy that it wasn't like real life and of course the ironic thing is that it's based off of a real life event um but he he was very he saw his um his fantasy as realism essentially the idea that he was um, a quote from him is actually, my idealism is more real than their realism. <laughs> this is realism only deeper. While they swim in the shallow waters, their realism cannot illuminate a hundredth part of the facts that are real and actually occurring. And with our idealism, we have predicted facts. It's happened. And that's for, you know, re- referring to the crime punishment situation. But, you know, he saw and I think he's really actually right um, for this, because what he's doing is he's taking a um, philosophy that is currently happening right at the time and pushing it to such extremity and saying like, what would happen if I put this philosophy, mix it with this and see what happens. And I'll do that seven different times. And now I have a bunch of characters and we'll see how they interact. So in the sense, he is kind of predicting, quote unquote, the future in the sense that he's like, if this was to happen with this philosophy and we push it to an extreme, this is how it would end. So he's very accurate. Maybe it doesn't actually happen in the end. But he's accurate in what if. And then, of course, with like the Russian Revolution, he was very accurate uh, regarding stuff. I was just about to say that is that the irony is it's not too long after that the year 1917 rolls around. And and instead of a a widespread class revolution that Marx predicted, first off, Marx predicted it in probably more developed countries like Germany or England for the class revolt to occur, not Russia. He claimed Russia would have been too backwards, which is 
also equally ironic. Um, but we don't see a class revolt of, of, of a sort of class consciousness that arises out of the proletariat, but instead we see really a, a, a militant gang of communists led by Lenin that seizes power and murders, you know, the czar and his family. And that's neither here nor there. But the point being is that in demons, you see a class of a small class of nihilists that try to seize control of a town. And and it comes to pass that we see in the October revolution, a, a pretty small in comparison to the population group of communists that go and seize power and conduct a revolution and take control of a country. Um, so the irony is 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 not lost um, that it would have <laughs> received such a negative reception, and in hindsight, it just seems kind of funny. Yeah, there's a great quote I can't find it right now, but um, of of people during the 1930s in, during the Russian Revolution, and they're they're talking about how they stay up late at night and read these like hidden secret pamphlets, which are just portions of demons, and they're talking about like watching the Russian Revolution play out. And they're they're talking like and and of course we knew this was going to happen. It was all right here in demons like that. He had essentially said like, yeah, that we knew that this wasn't outlandish. It's happening to us. So what people thought was outlandish and grotesque, you know, in the 1860s and then, you know, just 70 years later, people are like, oh, I'm living this. Yeah, this makes sense. Wow. That's wow. And then but. To also add on to this point, and I, I promise we'll get into the book no, again. About but I, I want to find this quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's not really about demons, but it's just about philosophy in general, because somebody can argue that, oh, well, slippery slope fallacy. You can't take these extremes of these ideas and then place them in a novel and expect to and expect to have any good philosophical substance come out of that. And I would say, at least in terms of the political philosophy that I've been trained in, and I would hazard to guess that the general philosophy that you are currently, you know, being trained in, it it absolutely does work to take ideas to their logical conclusion and pit them up against other ideas when taken to their logical conclusions. That's that's what you're supposed to oh, do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's all philosophy is, is like, pushing things to its extreme and seeing where you can find a breaking point or you can find some counter example. And right. Trying to right. So a lot of people, back. I think, you know, if you're a listener, one of the things to, if you're interested in philosophy, if you're studying philosophy, if you're in higher education, it, it, there's nothing wrong with taking these things to their logical conclusion and seeing where they break because that's where the test comes in. And I think Dostoevsky does that in spades and he does it in an entertaining way that will never be replicated ever again. So the thing is, is that uh, a lot of people want to present philosophy and make a lot of exceptions, right? So you'll see a lot of personalities over social media, YouTube, things like this, that they're so-called philosophers, right? And they'll come and they'll present a philosophy, but then with a ton of exceptions, a lot of moderations, a lot of addendums. And there's a purpose to that, perhaps, but... There, yeah, th- those are usually accepted if they're not ad hoc, like they felt like they feel like you're only making changes to your system because people are critiquing it. It has to be systemic and it has to flow into into the general schema. And the more random exceptions you make, the le- like that's a check mark against right, right. your theory. So I'm using right. this kind of this kind of segment as a as a point to make to just in general as to say that whole cloth systems that are at least consistent are better than systems that make a ton of exceptions to just kind of fit better with whatever the audience may be wanting out of said proponent. So if you're uncomfortable with something, the main thing is not to be uncomfortable and look for reasons to be dissuaded or to try to find some sort of moderation in the arguments or even like a lot of times with me, like wanting to have philosophers that I like agree with each other if they disagree with each other. And the better intellectual work would be to say, where's the consistency in this? Is it really going all the way through from beginning to end is very, very consistent, not hypocritical and doesn't contradict itself and takes its logical conclusions to their utmost to be limit tested. Um, and I think Dostoevsky, I think he does, he does that for us. Yeah. He, he's very honest in that, in that manner. If anyone is interested in that, you should read a book called After Virtue, um, by Alistair McIntyre. He kind of goes over, 
over that. But um, I found the quote, so I'm going to read it because <laughs> it's very good. Um, talking about demons. Interestingly enough, as Soviet Russians began to speak of their lives in the USSR, the book had come to be seen as far more prophetic than defamatory. Quote, these were frightening and enlightening nights. We read the devils or demons in the notebooks for the novel. We read and did not believe our eyes. All this we knew had believed it all. All this we recalled only too well. We read and interpreted each other or each other on almost every page. It can't be. How could he have known all this? Oh, incredible. Just Isn't incredible. That spooky? Really? Man. I mean, he would look like a pretty big idiot if the Russian Revolution had gone well. <laughs> yeah, if it if it if it had or if it could, really. Um, but that's another <laughs> that's another story for another time. Um so he punches the guy in the neck. Yeah, he punches the guy in the neck. Yeah. Right. And that's that's pretty much it for that chapter. Um, we took a chapter that, you know, pretty much nothing much goes on except he gets to the place he's going to. Um, right. He changes his mind at one point and like stops the carriage. And he's like, maybe I shouldn't do this. And then he's like, no, it's faded. And he jumps back in. He's like, why do you stop? You know, I love it. I love it. There's um, there's one quote from the chapter that I do want to pull out just for its own sake. He says, the wet snow was falling in big flakes. I unbuttoned myself regardless of it. I forgot everything else, for I had finally decided on the slap and felt with horror that it was going to happen now at once and that no force could stop it. The deserted street lamps gleamed sullenly in the snowy darkness like torches at a funeral. The snow drifted under my greatcoat, under my coat, under my cravat, and melted there. I did not wrap myself up. All was lost anyway. I bring that up just to not not to show the inevitability, but just to kind of remind us of exactly how wonderful. Yeah, he's that he's a writer, too, oh, yeah. you know, just <laughs> he's awesome. Uh, some of his paragraph long like descriptions are when he's talking in this last chapter and he's at this like excited fever pitch. Like I get you just start reading, you just keep reading and you look up and you're like three pages later and you're just like, Oh my gosh, like you just get lost. You just need to keep reading because he's so he's so good. Just his writing style is so amazing. I mean, it's a lot of words, but I think if any if any novel he he does um, better on that, it's this one. Yeah, because funny enough, I mean, you're only in a book. You look at it, right? You pick up notes from underground off of a shelf and you think to yourself, a hundred, hundred and five pages, hundred fifty, depending on the edition. And you're thinking, oh, it's knock that out. It's quick but you feel so exhausted reading this because it's so dense and so descriptive and has so much going on at any given moment that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it just, it it punches way above its weight class where so many authors may, you know, need many, many pages to kind of get to a point and be very, very descriptive about something. Dostoevsky shows that, I mean, obviously he writes long novels, but book more than any, is that he uses action to show the psychology so effectively without having to have that extra 300 pages that he does in some other books. Absolutely. Like just and like we talked about already, like there are only really in this in the actual fiction part of this book. There's the episode with the officer bumping in the road. There's the dinner party. And then there's really this last section we're about to talk about at the brothel. So it's really only three episodes and you just know this person inside and out. And it's it's amazing. Yeah. And you kind of wish you didn't know him. <laughs> um, <laughs> you take a shower. After yeah. Um, so he ends up in the brothel and they're not there. They're gone. And he meets Liza. And this is just I don't even know where to really begin or to end with the conversation that transpires between him and this prostitute. Um, I think he enters into a conversation with her just to kind of start off by saying, well, you can start with when he gets there and they're not there, but he's first of all relieved, but then he's very upset. And it, it talks about how when she comes out, I mean, he's in a brothel, he's about to have sex with a prostitute and it says, he, he finds himself repulsive when he looks in the mirror and it doesn't matter. I'm glad. Yes, precisely. I'm glad that I will seem repulsive to her. It pleases me. So he's turning all that like venom and spite and wrath that he had on Zirkov and the other group onto this completely innocent prostitute who's about to sleep. With. Why do you think that is? Why? I think it's because of his vanity, right? I think that he's 
it talks in other parts of the book too, and it's going to talk more. Um, but if you even look at the section about him being in high school, it talks about how his one friend um, that he did have, he oppressed him. And like for him, everything is about this like weird power dynamic. And you're going to see it a lot more in this last part with her. Where in the, and it's the same in the conversation. And then in the, her coming to his apartment, where for him, he sees he sees um, relations as this sort of like, you have to get the better of someone else before they get the best of you. And I think that at the absolute core, what this is, is that he is just like, he is he cannot be vulnerable anymore, right? And when he catches himself being vulnerable, he's ashamed of it. And I think that is the core reason that he cannot be redeemed is because in the end, anytime he's in a position of openness and vulnerability where he could be redeemed, he like snaps shut and it's not necessarily because he's afraid of being hurt. It's part of that, but it's because he's afraid of looking like a fool at being hurt, which is another layer deeper. It's not even that, oh, I, I just can't get hurt again. It's because he's like, what if I stay open and I accept this and then it was all a practical joke and then I look like such an idiot to the world. And so I think that is like the absolute core of his of his character, his vanity, and then the spite that comes out of this vanity. Because if he's this vain and this afraid and self-conscious, then he can't even have a regular open friendship, never mind a romantic relationship. And I think that's what the dynamic you're seeing in this conversation, and especially at the end. And we can't avoid the religious conversation that is inherently present in this either because Dostoevsky obviously is a very devout Christian, an Orthodox Christian. And it does lead to the supposition that there are many people that exist underground in this kind of state that he is presenting. And and I guess maybe as he would put it, and again, I'm just supposing, I'm not entirely sure, that perhaps living underground meaning to say that people can't accept grace and love. And grace being that undeserved unrequited love that you know just transcends all possibilities and where that infinite chasm that exists between god and man is bridged truly bridged and you did nothing for it and so in out of your own spite you whenever you see it you just lash out like a caged animal because there's as you're as you're kind of putting it so eloquently is that there's that other layer that's deeper in which you just don't want to be not not hurt but don't want to be made a fool of that you don't want to because i guess in a way or maybe as dostoevsky would put it is that perhaps grace and love in the way that he would imagine it in in christianity is so beyond any sort of social love that you would see uh, just shared between people that it, it's it's this kind of uh, unfathomable depth that could yeah. really destroy somebody for him it would definitely be this sort of mystery as to how in the world this love can be this deep i do think that within russian orthodoxy though there is more of a hope that it can exist between people but for him especially in the uh 1870s this was the was the question was how do you bring that love to the your neighbor and to the stranger and not just not just your wife or your family but i think for him the idea that 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 love may be able to exist within a smaller social bond but it's it's so hard to replicate on a grander scale and that's something he never really was able to give an answer to hmm yeah it just it just presents an interesting question of of exactly how many people exist underground and what does this underground look like? And I think we're seeing that formation, I guess, if if not have already saw the formation in the underground man, at least in, in these scenes. And so he ends up engaging in this conversation with Liza, this prostitute, and he asks her all these different kinds of questions about her. And essentially you're kind of disgusted because he makes a point to say that he is going to destroy this young girl, that he wants to bring her under his influence and his power and then destroy her out of that spite and that venom that mm -hmm. you were talking about. And he essentially just lies. He starts lying about this girl who died from consumption, who was buried in the cemetery. He, he spins this story about how, you know, nobody cared about this young woman who, who passed away. 
and they go back and forth and then it eventually and I'm skipping over a lot of this because it is kind of tedious to kind of talk about it in a podcast format. Yeah, basically he's it it opens with him saying like anguish and spleen surged up again and again and saw an outlet and suddenly I saw behind beside me two open eyes, Liza. And then he like Aaron said he using all this like all of these lies and then all of this romantic all these romantic tropes to try to get her to essentially feel terrible about herself. And this romantic trope is um, goes back to that Necrosov poem that opens this section that we talked about last time, where it was this romantic trope um, in romantic literature that a man would meet a prostitute and he would redeem her. So that's essentially what what he's doing here is he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll charm her using all of these ideas that I got from books and it always works in the book. And then once she's redeemed, I'll laugh in her face because I'll say how stupid you were to fall for these empty romantic words that aren't even mine, which is a really disgusting, horrible thing. But it, it it also is weird because here's a man who lives by those romantic tropes or at least attempts to. So what would be the purpose in using those same tropes to then invert the narrative and destroy somebody this is yeah this is this is where i think that it gets i think that um while he's talking i think he gets caught up in it to the point where he really believes it too because this is what he loves and believes right he wants this romantic thing to happen i think that within here there are moments and it's tough to go through and pick them out because you really have to kind of like read into the tone but there are moments in here, I'm pretty sure, where he's no longer just BSing, but he actually believes it and he's like starting to convince himself. And then he kind of takes this meta look and he's like, oh, I'm an idiot. I'm fooling myself as well as her. Like, like this is stupid. Yeah, he even has a line in here that he ends up echoing later on in other novels earnestly where he says, uh, love is a holy mystery and ought to be hidden from all other eyes, whatever happens. That makes it holier and better. They respect one another more. It's talking about married people and much is built on respect. And if once there has been love, if they have been married for love, why should love pass away? Surely one can keep it. It is rare that one cannot keep it. And why should not love last? The first phase of married love will pass. It is true. But then there will come a love that is better still. Then there will be the union of souls. They will have everything in common. There will be no secrets between them. And that's something that I find that Dostoevsky is all about, like personally, that he talks about mm-hmm. extensively. Yeah. And so it's just it, it's such an odd setting because he is he is going on and on and on. He's like really <laughs> like hammering home this idea of of marriage and children and love and the union of souls. And as you're saying, it's ecstatic. Like you're seeing the mania of a guy. Yeah, it says at the end of the end of that tirade that you just read, which goes on like another page. Drove him to fury. Yeah, it says that. Yeah, I swear I spoke with feeling at towards the end of my oration. I was really carried away. And now my vanity has suffered because he kind of did get carried away into it. Oh, man, it's. And so you're left. He forgot he was just trying to BS a hook. (laughs) My bad. Oh, no. And and then she comes to him and and he's about to leave. Right. And then she runs up and she gives him this little or am I getting ahead of myself? I'm sorry. Um, it, you're, you're about right. It keeps going again. So he talks about all the romantic stuff and the, and like you said, family and love and like, how could you sacrifice or throw your life away like this? You're young now, but you'll die an old and used woman and no one will care about you. So he's like trying to get her emotional so he can like laugh at her. But he kind of exposes himself too much to the point where he feels like like he's showing what he actually might care about or he might actually wonder because he goes again and does the whole thing where he's talking about how she's just going to die alone. And he's once again carried by carried away by his own eloquence. But it ends with her, like you're saying, really, she is actually convinced um, yeah she's convinced she actually she calls she calls him out for saying like he talks like he's out of a book and so for a second there he's like oh no she's on to me but she still she still is like oh no like i she really is convicted like she really doesn't like her life here she really would love to find a husband and have a happy family life and so he's about to sneak out and 
she becomes incredibly vulnerable and gives him a letter, a love letter from an admirer and is kind of like saying, look, this is my proudest possession. I'm sharing it with you. I do. I'm not just a prostitute who's going to who wants to live this way forever. Like this is evidence that I do want what you're talking about, this beautiful life. And this is supposed to be proof of that. And he realizes that that she she is sharing something incredibly personal and vulnerable and then kind of once again is like, oh, how sad like this. She really thinks that this is going to happen. She dropped her shining eyes with a sort of bashfulness as she finished. The poor girl was keeping that student's letter as a precious treasure and had run to fetch it. Her only treasure because she did not want me to go away without knowing that she, too, was honestly and genuinely loved that she too was addressed respectfully. No doubt that letter was destined to lie in her box and lead to nothing. But nonetheless, I am certain that she would keep it all her life as a precious treasure, as her pride and justification. And now at such a minute, she had thought of that letter and brought it with naive pride to raise herself in my eyes that I might see that I too might think well of her. I said nothing, pressed her hand, and went out. Oh, oh. Um, what do you make of that? Well, before? I think that it, it shows that the role he, so he was play acting this whole time as a romantic trope and it worked. Was he? But so was that, he? Yeah. So that ends with him saying this, the last portion is of this chapter or that section is I was exhausted, crushed, bewildered, but the truth was already beginning to glimmer through the bewilderment, the ugly truth. And so I think, and then the next one starts with, it was time. However, I, before I consented to face this truth. So there's this truth that just happened here. And there was also this lie. So at the beginning, at the very least, he was going into this with the sheer intention of just, making fun of her, of getting her to believe something just so he could crush her like he was going to crush Zhirkov. But I do think that I agree with you that at certain points and then especially at the end, there is this real sense of softness and vulnerability and the sense that what he was doing, the self-awareness that what he was doing was horrifically wrong and that she is a person and not just a person, but someone who's so much more worthy than he is because look how innocent she was If he was in the situation, he probably if he had been Liza, he probably would have been on his guard and never softened up and would have been doing what he's been doing this whole book, which is just swinging back and forth. But she was this innocent person who took him and gave him like the benefit of the doubt and really wanted to have this open, loving, like sincere relationship that she sees him as this high flown, moralizing, romantic hero, which is kind of ironic because he's there visiting her on a brothel. But in in her eyes and in his eyes, he knows that she sees him as this almost kind of romantic knight in shining armor, someone who came in here to save her in the same way that the prostitute is saved in the Necrosoft poem or in what is to be done. And so we enter into an interesting dynamic with that because he has the opportunity to be what he's so badly wanted to be but yet he can't yeah he almost trips by virtue of himself yeah, he almost yeah. trips into it right he like falls face first into what he's really wanted a real open human loving relationship and he did it by accident because he was trying to like to to, to trick a prostitute and so at this point it says He's talking about the next day. It says, I was, in fact, amazed at my sentimentality with Liza at all those horrors and pities of last night. An attack of old woman's nerves, I decided. And why the devil did I give her my address? What if she comes? And so he's here trying to say, like, oh, no, that was just my nerves. I didn't really feel that that sentimentality. I He's trying to convince himself that he really was at a distance. Right. But I agree with you that he kind of slips in and out of this play acting and does become sentimental and does actually see what he really is looking for and just doesn't know how to grab it. Yeah, because he's too, I guess, broken is without a better way to put it. And with Liza, like you said, you do see that innocence. But 
it's not really like the kind of romantic innocence of of children, you know, where these children are extolled to be perfect because they're innocent and all this other kind of imagery that comes up. But instead, just the earnest desire to love is just there and it's unabashed and it's unashamed. And it's and the key word is naive, is that it's not mutilated by. By just the it hasn't been destroyed, I guess, because you would think with a prostitute what they would see and what they would go through the horrors of being a prostitute either today or even back then would. Yeah, it would destroy somebody and love would not be something that is that is something that they believe that they can perhaps obtain. But here's Liza. I think that's why it's such a why it's used in romantic literature, like even think Les Mis. It's like here you have someone who has every reason in the world to be to harden their heart, right? To just withdraw. And even maybe at the beginning of this, you kind of don't know. And it takes him a while because when they have that first conversation, it's a little bit like she's very she doesn't want to give a lot of information. But then she's won over by this rhetoric, by his eloquence. And so it's like it's it's even more impressive that she still has that softness and that desire to really love underneath what would be so easy to to build up this hard exterior and become spiteful and ironic like he is, but she's not. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Is this a good place to kind of, I, I don't think we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to continue. We're yeah, we're almost yeah. an hour. And I think the ending is worth dissecting, especially if we want to tie it back to some of the stuff we talked about at the beginning right, of the series. Right. But I felt like this was this was good. It's kind of sad, obviously. And it's that a I think sad one. Yeah, it's and I think the next episode will also be just as equally sad because uh oh, this, yeah, that one's even worse. <laughs> yeah, this I, and I think it's it's good that we're taking that tone because I think that Notes from Underground should there is comedic scenes, but it's a very, very serious book and it's a very sad book. And I think it's very important then when reading it, it gives pause for self-reflection and seeing what areas of our life that maybe perhaps are existing underground because philosophy is really nothing like we said earlier without that practical application, without it being actually used and put to practice and, and limit tested. And I think there's something here about love and being underground that perhaps is something that maybe is holding people back, is harming us in our relationships and is not allowing us to, I guess, experience all that life may have for us and all of its ups and downs. But I think this is something that to definitely be explored in the later episode. Did you have anything you wanted to round us off with or you good? No, I think I like I like that ending. I think it's important to say that, like you said, there may it may not be your wholesale. You look like the underground man. I don't think almost anyone, thank God, does. Um, but there are definitely parts of your life, and especially when we talk about vulnerability and this desire to find non-ironic, <laughs> real love. Um, I think that's definitely something worth thinking about, and that's that's one trait that carries over to any part of your life that you feel like you need to, you know, shut up uh, over and be very self-conscious about. And I think that we'll see that at, uh, in full action and next time. Hmm. Yeah. So we'll just end it off on a, a more somber note today and just kind of give it the seriousness and, and um, space that it deserves. So um, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening to this episode and be sure to tune in when we round off the entire series and conclude Notes from Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Thank you so much. Enjoy your week.